few weeks ago, Steve and Joan Mann were here, and they showed us some photographs of the work that we do in Zambia. Some of you will remember, we've told you before the story about a friend of ours who was a nurse in northern Ontario. She's from Singapore originally, but she's been in Victoria now for years. And in between stints in Victoria, she was doing nursing in northern Ontario among uh, native people. You had to fly into that community. There wasn't any other way in. And so she, uh, at one point, oh, must be 15 years ago now, flew to Venezuela for a nursing conference. And then on her way back, as she was flying back from Venezuela to this outpost in northern Ontario, it was wintertime. The lake was frozen, and as her plane was descending toward the, the uh, airport, right when it was over the lake, the plane suddenly dropped out of the sky, just dropped down and smashed onto the frozen lake surface. All of the impact was centered underneath her seat. She was the only person on the plane that was injured uh, in any way significant. And the impact of her coming down onto the lake surface that was frozen immediately severed her spine. And she has been in a wheelchair since then. Her name is Mala Segram. She actually, at one point, went to church here several years ago. Well, the reason I'm saying all that, the reason I said at the beginning we saw some photos from Zambia several weeks ago, was that I noticed in looking at those photos, that Mala had been to Zambia. I saw her in the photographs. I know she was there. And I wasn't surprised by that at all. And the reason it didn't surprise me is because Mala continued, after she had her accident, she continued to return to northern Ontario and to do nursing for several years. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had endured all that Mala had endured, I'm not sure that I would have been ready to return to northern Ontario to that outpost and do nursing in that climate where she did. I think there would have been something about me that just would have said, oh, I don't think I can do this anymore. Given my circumstances, given my accident, I think I'm done. But she wasn't done. She continued to nurse there. And now I notice in these photographs that not only does she go to northern Ontario and continue to nurse for years after her accident, but now she's going to Zambia in order to minister to people there and to care for the orphans and the poor. Again, there's a part of me that wonders, would I be able to do that? Like I'd like to be able to think that I could do that. I'd like to think that if I experienced that kind of catastrophic accident, that I would afterwards say, I can still do this. God is still good. God is still blessing me. Things are wonderful. I need to give my life still to others and to minister to them. I'd like to think I could do that. But in the case of Mala, there is living proof that indeed that can be done. It's exactly what she's done. Well, last week we focused on joy as an outcome of our faith in Christ, the joy that the world needs and we need to preach joy and proclaim joy. We need to exhibit joy. But it's hard, I think, 
to reflect joy when you hear gunfire coming from the other side of your village. I think it's hard to have joy when you hear sirens responding to the massive explosion from down the block that just blew out the windows of your office building. I think it's hard to be joyful when you're cradling in your lap the lifeless body of your only remaining son because he has just been killed. Or when the news broadcasts another soldier's casket being unloaded from the plane. It's hard to reflect joy when you come home from work and your spouse is left. And I mean really left. It's hard to express joy when the police arrive at your door to explain that your daughter's been in an accident. Or when you hear the word cancer and it's said in relation to the name of someone you love. And it's hard, I think, to express joy when you learn that you will never walk again. Joy is way too much to hope for in those circumstances, I think. At least immediate joy. But it's interesting that despite the fact that we may not be able to express joy in those circumstances, and I certainly don't think that Mala is in a position of saying, I'm joyful about my accident, that something else is present within her. And maybe I wouldn't describe that as joy, or maybe I would. But at least there is within her a sense of peace. There is some peace in her, a peace that amazingly transcends. And just like that, we have something that we proclaim about this kind of peace. We have a peace, we say, that allows us to think that everything is going to end up all right. Now, we have some people in our congregation today, in some, in some cases you know this, and in other cases you don't, who have diseases. In some cases, life-threatening. In some cases, the kind of disease that would be absolutely debilitating, at least potentially. What do they do with this? How is it that one faces that circumstance and then continues to go on day after day and not just get by, but to even through that circumstance live triumphantly? Like, is that really possible? Is it possible for a person in this life to live triumphantly with a genuine peace in your heart despite the circumstances which in your life might be very negative. Now the reason I raise this issue is because not only do people of course face these kind of circumstances, but it's very possible that today there is somebody sitting here who doesn't know Jesus as Lord and who faces just those kinds of circumstances. And what I want to say to you is this. I want to say to you, that in Jesus Christ, in the Christian faith, in the faith that almost all of these people around you today proclaim, that there is in that faith a teaching, 
and the example of a man, Jesus, who proclaims something that can bring into your life the kind of peace that allows you, like a molasegram, to even despite something like now being confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life, find in life still peace. And the strength in that peace is abiding and deep and real. Sometimes people talk about these things and they talk about it in such a detached way, in almost a lighthearted way, as if it's not really that serious or as if we can just so easily overcome this. I've seen Mala. I've, I've watched her live. She didn't just easily overcome this. I'm not going to say that this was glibly or... Uh, just with a happy-go-lucky kind of attitude that she continued on through life after her spinal cord was severed. It isn't like that at all. And so this is real stuff. But despite the reality that is hers, and despite, no doubt, some days of depression, despite some days of it just being hard, she has persevered. And through her Lord, she continues to live triumphantly. And so if you are a person who doesn't know Jesus today and you wonder about whether or not peace is possible for you, I want you to know that it is. I'm not going to to in any way make light of your circumstances. I'm not going to act as though this is just going to be easily overcome. Become a Christian, peace is yours like that. Become a Christian, Instant joy, no matter what your circumstances. We're not going to play that game. I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's realistic. But I will tell you that in Jesus, there is the possibility of a real peace being yours, no matter your circumstances. Because ultimately, Jesus is Lord. Now what's interesting about this is that when we talk about peace in our world, oftentimes it is not to Christianity that people first want to turn. In fact, I would say this. We Christians must face a truth when it comes to discussing the topic of peace in our world today. And that is, when people in the world think of peace, they don't necessarily think of Christianity first. Now, I don't know if that bothers you, but it kind of does bother me. Like I'd like to think that the message of peace that is there in Christ is one that is so instantly attractive to the world that people just want it. That they recognize that Christianity is the place that they can go to for peace. And that everybody knows it, everybody thinks that. And that's just where they go. But do you know where people are most likely to go to when the question of peace first arises? Like if someone says, let's talk about peace. Let's talk about peace in our world. Let's talk about peace in society. Or let's talk about a peace movement. Do you know that people are more likely to turn to Eastern religions to start talking about Buddhism or to start talking about Hinduism or some other Eastern faith than they are Christianity. Why is that? If if I said to someone in the world, peace, in most cases, their word association response would not be Christ or Christianity or Christians. Why? 
Now, if I say football, what do you think of? What comes to mind? I say football, what do you think of? Somebody... Sorry, say it loud. I'm just getting lots of noise there. Stampeders, of course. Yeah, I say football, you think of Stampeders. What's that? Well, maybe. <laughs> or if I, say, if I say football, you might think Grey Cup. I say football, you might think Super Bowl. But how many of you immediately thought of World Cup? Maybe a few. The South Americans among us. The Africans among us. Words mean something to us. There's a word association thing going on so that you say a word and something comes to people's minds. Well, what happens when I say peace? Most of the people in the world, if I say peace, they don't first think Christ. If I say peace, they don't first think Christianity. They are more likely to say, as I said, Buddhism, world peace movement, or something other than Christianity. I find that interesting. Now, there's lots of reasons why that might be the case. Uh, it might be because when we think of what Christ does in our lives, we even ourselves don't first think Jesus brings peace. What does Jesus bring? Well, most of us would say Jesus brings the forgiveness of sins. If I ask the question, what does peace have to do with Christianity, and you're a pacifist, then you might say a great deal. But if you're not a pacifist, and we would have differences of opinion among us this morning, then peace may not be the thing that comes to you first. Even when I read scripture and I go through the New Testament, I ask the question, is peace right at the heart of the New Testament? I tend to think no. There are other words that come to mind. Christ comes to mind first in terms of the heart of the New Testament. Love comes to mind first when I think of the heart of the New Testament. Forgiveness, grace, justification, lots of things might come to mind first rather than peace when I think of the heart of the New Testament. So in a sense, it's not surprising to me that the world wouldn't first think of peace when it thinks, or wouldn't first think of Christianity when it thinks of peace. Nonetheless, I would say, and again, I want to speak to those especially who don't know Jesus as Lord this morning, that if in your life you're longing for peace, I want to commend to you our faith. Because I think this is a place that one can go to and find genuine, lasting peace. If the world does not first think of Christianity when it thinks peace thinks peace, is this a problem? Well, is it important to us that the world thinks Christianity first when it thinks peace? I don't know about that. It's important, though, that life for us is filled with peace when we come to know Jesus. Just quickly, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Page 832 in your pew Bibles. If you're a person who's looking this morning for lasting peace, we're just going to look at three or four passages here quickly that take you to exactly the kind of peace that Christianity offers you. And this is the first one. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious, he says. This is amazing. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, he says, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What that passage says is that if you long for peace in your life, take your request for peace to God. And the text specifically says, That God will give you a peace that is beyond your comprehension, beyond your understanding. And so if you're looking for peace, real peace, this can go as deep as you want it to go. Next, turn to Romans chapter 8. I put all these verses up there. We won't read all of those this morning. Look at verse 22. This says that we know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that's seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? If we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And what he's talking about how is how the whole world is waiting for something, longing for something. And it could be that your life is waiting and longing for something. In verse 26 it says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. All of that is saying that God's Spirit is working with us with this longing we have and with our heart filled with great need to minister to us and intercede between ourselves and God to give us perfect peace. And so verse 28 says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who've been called according to his purpose. Again, that doesn't mean that everything is just going to be perfect for you. That's not the point. The point is that even despite your circumstances, whether your spinal cord is severed or you contract a fatal disease, that even those things, which can be so harsh, have the potential of working some good in our world for those who love the Lord. And there's the possibility that whatever tragedy it is that you face, that God can take that tragedy and do something still wonderful with it, despite the awfulness of what occurs. Then I want you to turn to John 14. Jesus says, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the counselor of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I don't give you as the world gives, but do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And so Jesus provides something, he says, the presence of the Spirit which is different than what the world provides when it comes to peace. 
And if you're one of those people today who longs for something, I need something to sustain me, something to get me through this time. It's the peace of Christ that will transcend and lift you through that difficult circumstance. Now flip over the page to 1633. Jesus simply says, I've told you these things so that in you, in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, he says. So he's not taking you out of this world. He's leaving you here. He says that you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And because Jesus has overcome the world, He gives his followers the strength and the ability to also overcome the world and everything the world throws at you. And so you think, boy, I don't know. Is this guy talking to me this morning? Does he realize how bad things are for me? Does he not not get my pain? Well, it's very possible that I don't. In fact, I would say, I probably don't. But despite the fact that I don't totally understand your pain, I want you to understand that there is someone who does. And this one who understands your pain wants to give you a peace that passes all understanding. He wants to work in your life and minister to you in such a way that whatever it is that you've experienced, he can pull you through it. I promise I've seen it happen. Many of you know the story. It's been told many times. But there are some of you here who may not have heard it. And so despite the fact that this is in fact a well-known story, I want to tell it again this morning briefly. And I pray this is a blessing for those who may not know Jesus, but who can see how he lives in his followers. In the late 1860s, life was good for Horatio G. Spafford and his wife Anna. They were living in a north side suburb of Chicago with their five children, Annie, Maggie, Bessie, Tanetta, and Horatio Jr. Horatio Sr. had a successful law practice in Chicago. The doors of the Spaffords' home were always open as a place for activists to meet during the reform movements of the time. Spafford was quite active in the abolitionist movement. Francis Willard, president of the National Women's Christian Temperance Union, as well as evangelical leaders like Dwight Moody, were often guests in their home. Spafford was a Presbyterian church elder, and a dedicated Christian. Until now, Horatio and Anna Spafford had led a charmed life. They had everything going their way. However, in 1870, their faith was tested by tragedy. Their four-year-old son, Horatio Jr., died of scarlet fever. The Spaffords were devastated. In October of 1871, when the great Chicago fire broke out, Horatio faced another test of his faith. A few months before the Great Chicago Fire, Spafford, being a wealthy man, had invested much of his wealth in real estate by the shore of Lake Michigan. Not only did the Great Chicago Fire destroy most of Chicago, 
but most of Spafford's holdings were destroyed. 250 people died in the Great Chicago Fire. 90,000 were left homeless, and he lost his investments. The Spaffords did not despair. Their home had been spared, and they had their family. God had been good, even though their finances were mostly depleted. Anna and Horatio used what resources they had left to feed the hungry, help the homeless, care for the sick and injured, and comfort their grief-stricken neighbors. The great Chicago fire was a great American tragedy. The Spaffords used it to show the love of Christ to those in need. In 1873, Anna Spafford's health was failing and hoping to put behind the tragic loss of their son and the fire, and to benefit Anna's health, the Spaffords planned a trip to Europe. They would sail on the French steamer Villa de Havre to Europe with their four daughters. Spafford not only wanted to visit Europe, but he wanted to assist certain evangelists like Dwight L. Moody in a revival that they were conducting in England. So he was going there, they were going there for good purposes. The Spaffords planned to leave in November on their voyage to Europe. As sometimes happens, God had other plans for Horatio. The day they were to sail for Europe, Spafford had a business emergency and could not leave. Not wanting to disappoint his wife Anna and their daughters, he sent them on ahead and planned to follow on another ship in a few days. Accompanying Anna Spafford were her French governess, Emma Leroux, and several friends and several ministers. On November 22, 1873, the steamer was struck by a British iron sailing ship as it crossed the Atlantic. The steamer with Anna Spafford and her daughters aboard sank within 12 minutes in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Only 81 of the 307 passengers and crew members survived the tragic shipwreck. An American cargo sailing vessel arrived in time to save the survivors of the ship. Anna Spafford was taken to Cardiff, Wales, where she telegraphed her husband Horatio. Anna's cable was brief and heartbreaking. I am saved alone. What shall I do? Horatio and Anna's four daughters had drowned. As soon as he received Anna's telegram, Horatio left Chicago without delay to bring his wife home. Sailing across the Atlantic Ocean, the captain of the ship called Horatio to the bridge. He informed Horatio that a careful reckoning has been made and I believe we are now passing the place where the Villa de Havre was wrecked. The water here is three miles deep. That night, alone in his cabin, Horatio G. Spafford penned the words to his famous hymn, It is well with my soul. Horatio's faith in God never faltered. He later wrote Anna's half-sister, On Thursday last, we passed over the spot where she went down in mid-ocean. The water's three miles deep. But I do not think of our dear ones there. They are safe, folded, the dear lambs. We're going to sing this hymn. And I know that many of you have heard that story before. But there is somebody here this morning who's never heard it. And I hope to you this morning it speaks the message that despite the circumstances you face, that it can be well with your soul 
because Jesus is the Lord of all of our souls. And there is an abiding peace that can be yours despite any circumstance that you face. The key to that is the answer to the question, is Jesus Lord of your life? He wants to be. He wants to bless you with his peace. He wants to do so even this morning. Let's stand and sing together, please. When peace like a river attended my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well. Well.